Uh, Then, congregation, this evening we would direct your attention within the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 16. You can find that on page 1345 in your pew Bible. Uh, We depart from the series that we had begun through the prophecy of Micah. Uh, We want to take one more sermon uh, this evening to consider, broadly speaking, topics related to the installation of office bearers, having spent the last two uh, weeks Considering the duties of those respective office bearers, we thought it appropriate this evening to consider uh, more of the relationship of the entire congregation. And then next week, Lord willing, Reverend Pontier will labor in our midst uh, with the pulpit ministry. And then after that, we will return to our series through the prophecy of Micah. So we read from the Word of God this evening, Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1, continuing through verse 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And our text, more specifically, is verses 12 through 16. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and what follows. A so congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we indicated In our introduction to the reading of Scripture, we have underneath the providence of God the last two weeks considered uh, the duties of office bearers, of those men who are called by God and who are placed in certain respective offices within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the office of elder. Uh, Those men who are charged with overseeing the doctrine of the life and shepherding the church of God, and also the office of deacon, uh, those men who are placed in that official position of being the expressions of compassion as they bring the figurative cups of cold water to those who are in need. But it would seem appropriate, at least to myself, and hopefully you will acknowledge also the appropriateness of considering this topic. Well, what then of the congregation? 
What then of the rank and file member? What then of the people in the pews, so to speak? Do they also have a responsibility? Uh, Is there a duty that applies to them uh, in the office, we might say, of Christian? In that office which we all bear in common, being united to the Lord Jesus Christ by the exercise of a true and a living and saving faith. Well, I want to say by way of introduction that the Scriptures are clear that church membership is to be within a local congregation. But that church membership, which is to be within a local congregation, is to be an active membership. An active membership flowing out of the truth that the Christian is a living member with spiritual life given unto him or her by the Spirit of Christ through the redemptive work of the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a living member, a living organism is one that is active. And so you might, and perhaps the analogy is not the most pleasant, but you might look upon... Maybe you think of an, a, a possum playing dead. And, and you look at the possum and you go, well, is it, is it alive or is it dead? And boys and girls, I don't know if you ever had this opportunity. I know I have when I was a young. There's a possum playing dead. And, and you take a, a stick and hopefully a, a long stick and uh, you begin to poke and prod it like young boys are prone to do. And all of a sudden it might move and it might even hiss or snarl at you and go, oh, that possum's alive. Well, how do you know? Well, it's moving. It's active. Now, certainly not with the hissing of a possum, although perhaps the experience in the life of the church, because we're still in the militant stage, at times it might appear that the life within the church is out of a hissing of a possum. But hopefully that's not the analogy point that we're picking up. But there has to be this active participation, this active living as a member in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to consider for our mutual encouragement and edification this evening. Underneath this theme, the ministry of the saints. The ministry of the saints. Well, notice, first of all, the equipping for this ministry. Then secondly, the task of this ministry. And then thirdly, the goal of this ministry. So yes, there are men who are called to the office of Minister, minister of the word and the sacrament, who especially are given the opportunity and the responsibility to preach the word and administer the sacraments. And then there are men who are called to the office of elder. And then there are men who are called to the office of deacon. We use men in all regards to these offices purposefully. But then there is also what we would call the office of believer. And the saint is to minister. The saint is to minister because they are equipped. And that's our first point And their equipping for the ministry comes by way of an ascended Christ and it comes by way of a delegated office. When we talk about life within the church and when we talk about office bearing within the church and when we talk about the saint and when we talk about the living member within the church, we need to understand that the living member is a living member because of what Christ has done. And what Christ has done is that He has obtained spiritual life. And He has ascended Upon the completion of his redemptive work, in the state of exaltation, he has ascended into heaven and he has seated himself at the right hand. And part of what he has done as he has transitioned into that exalted state of his redemptive work, 
is He has poured forth the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit primarily does is takes that spiritual life, which has been obtained by the Lord Jesus Christ, and He gives it to the saints. He gives it. He imparts it into the very heart and into the very soul of the Christian. And theologically, we call this the work of regeneration. So that with regeneration, a person actually passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. And with that spiritual life, uh, there then flows all of the benefits and the blessings that come with receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that this is what the Apostle Paul stresses within our text in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I just want to pause there and note the preceding context. Verse 1 through 6 is emphasizing the unity of the church. We well understand, and the book of Revelation also identifies this, that there are local particular manifestations of the church, which we call covenant reformed church, etc. So there is the church of the uh, Ephesus and of Smyrna and Thessalonica, but then there's also this idea that there's only one church. There's only one body of Christ. And Paul's at pains underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to emphasize this in verse 1 through 6. And flowing out of that comes verse 7, of course, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, we would just point out, it does not say to some of us, grace was given. But to each one of us, grace was given. And we just want to bring to our own self-awareness that we ought to be aware of the fact that we are recipients of grace. And this certainly should not create within us an attitude of pride and arrogance, but rather the humble recognition that the ascended Christ has been pleased through His Holy Spirit, to give to myself and to give to yourselves His grace, His undeserved, unmerited favor. And that in part, what this does is it calls us, it separates us to live a life that is Christ-centered. That is Christ-centered, that also displays something of the characteristics of Christ. Now, Christ is certainly more than just a moral example. He's more than that. He is, of course, the substitutionary atonement. But he is a moral example. And that's where the Apostle Paul comes and he says in verse 1, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Well, what calling? We are called to be Christians. We are called to be followers of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says, imitators of Christ. And perhaps we become so concerned with not wanting to just give this idea of being moral exemplaries, that we lose focus upon our calling. We are called to be saints. We are called to be holy ones, sanctified, set apart. And that grace is given to us to fulfill this calling of Christian. Uh, And then, by this ascended Christ, we are given a delegated office. Uh, And this office is seen in the use of the word ministry. And here we would drop down to verse 12 for the equipping of the saints. Now, the preceding verse 11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, what we would typically say were temporary offices in the New Testament era during the apostolic area. And with the ceasing of the apostolic area, 
uh, era, rather, there was the ceasing of the office of apostles and of prophets, at least in the uh, term of foreseeing things by way of direct revelation. But there are the ongoing offices of pastors and of teachers, and their role primarily is not to do ministry, but rather to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the role of the man who stands in the pulpit preaching and teaching the Word of God and administering the sacraments is to equip you as the body to do the work of the ministry. And now we understand our received terminology. We refer typically to the man who is appointed to preach and to teach and to administer the sacraments. We refer to him as the minister. And I'm not going to quibble over terminology, but if that use of that term leads to this lack of understanding that every Christian is a minister, then we need to rethink our terminology. Because if you are a Christian, then you are called to the ministry. At least in this sense, that you are to use the gifts and you are to use the talents, you are to use the grace that God has given you for the edifying, verse 12, of the body of Christ. We'll transition into that just a bit more in our second point. But as we move to that transition, uh, let us, at the conclusion of this first point, acknowledge uh, that the Christian is a person who is to be an active participant within the life of the church because the church is the body of Christ. And everyone who is a Christian has received a measure of grace. And that grace enables them to fulfill a certain role given their unique gifts, talents, and opportunities within the broader community of the Christian congregation. Well, what then, in our second point, is the task of this ministry? The task, you might say, is to be conducted by the saints and is to be summarized as a ministry. We want to back up just a little bit and look at this term, saints. And you can go all the way back to the opening of Ephesians Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And perhaps we kind of retract away from that term. I remember a conversation I had once uh, with someone in no way connected to anyone here in this congregation or even in this community, uh, but, but a man who was a member of the church. And he had a real problem with referring to Christians as saints. And as we conversed, he objected time and time again. And he said, we cannot refer to ourselves as saints because we are such sinners. And I said, I acknowledge that we are such sinners, but we are. And I, I didn't coin the phrase. I borrowed it from Luther. I really borrowed it from Paul. I said, we're, we're saintly sinners and we're sinful saints, but the Christian is a saint. Well, what is a saint? The word just simply means one who is holy. Now, as a Christian, if we're living with the exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are holy, and we are holy both objectively and subjectively. We are holy by way of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And sadly, I fear the man did not understand justification by faith. Because if we understand justification by faith, then we will, with great Eagerness, claim the title saint. That based upon what Christ has done in His perfect act of obedience and passive obedience, 
God now looks upon me as I am in Christ, and He credits to my account the perfect righteousness of Christ, and He takes all of my sin and He has transferred that upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the substitutionary atonement, so that in justification when God looks at me, He sees that I have never once broken the commandments and that I have kept every single one of them. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And I believe that this is where we need to begin to understand the liberating reality of what salvation is. Because that looses us from the bondage and the shackles of guilt and of shame. And that motivates us then to present the entirety of our lives into the service of the great God who has done such a remarkable thing on our behalf. How can I not serve Him? By serving my fellow brother and sister. And I also believe that the understanding of justification by faith alone through the imputation of Christ's active and passive obedience would give us a different perspective of one another. Because within the church, uh, we are not always all the most pleasant of human beings. And so a brother sins against a brother and a sister sins against a sister. Sadly, there is gossip and sadly, there is backbiting. Sadly, there are grudges and sadly, there is bitterness that can come even within a Christian relationship, even within a Christian home. What are we to do with these things? Well, in part, if I can begin to understand that the reason my brother is a member of the church is the exact same reason that I am a member of the church, because of the reality of justification by faith alone. Yes, my brother is a sinner, and my sister is a sinner, but a justified sinner. And Christ has taken all of their guilt upon Himself and He has given unto them by way of a free double imputation all of His righteousness so that we begin to look at one another as fellow saints even though we sadly recognize the reality that we are sinful saints. But not only objectively, but also subjectively. Justification and sanctification Congregation, they can never, ever, ever be confused in our minds. But we can also never divorce the one from the other. The person who is justified is the person who will be sanctified. And so when we call a saint a saint, we acknowledge that there's also this renewing work of the Holy Spirit. There's an old man and a new man. And yes, the old man still lingers, but in principle, the old man is put to death with the work of regeneration. And the new man comes to greater and greater expressions in life through the process of ongoing sanctification, or perhaps what we term conversion. And here also, if we were to view one another with, with this in mind, that God is at work within my brother or my sister, and God is at work, among other things, in sanctifying them in this ongoing process. And if we were to acknowledge that, yes, even the greatest of saints in this life have but, as our catechism says, only the small beginnings of obedience. But they have the beginnings of obedience. I believe this will radically transform the way we look upon one another. You know, sometimes, at least in Michigan in the summer, it seems like every road has the signs Construction. Construction in progress. And you can drive by and perhaps 
as I often do, you, you murmur underneath your breath, or maybe not underneath your breath, about how slow the construction process takes. It seems they put the sign up as soon as the frost leaves, and they take the signs down just before the winter comes. And you drive by, and you, you see all kinds of equipment, but none of it's working. And you begin to grumble and complain. Now, not that we should grumble and complain about the rate of progress in our brothers and sisters within the spiritual community of the church, but just remember your brother and your sister is a work in progress. God is steadily working upon all of us, upon every living member within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that recognition goes a long way towards the fulfillment of what you see in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. The word beseech. Paul could have come with his firm admonishment of his apostolic authority. He could have said, I am the Apostle Paul. I authoritatively command you. But with what follows, you'd see that there's an ironic twist. You can't really authoritatively command someone to have all lowliness and gentleness and be long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. So he comes and he says, I beseech you. It almost has this idea, I beg and I plead with you. I beg and I plead with you as fellow members of the church that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Well, what is this worthiness of the calling? With a posture of humility. With a posture of humility that expresses itself with lowliness. Now, not a pretended false humility. Not a in Eeyore mentality, woe am I, I'm the chief of sinners without really meaning it. There is a danger that we take pride in our pretended humility. But this is a true, genuine spirit of lowliness and of gentleness. And flowing out of this lowliness and this gentleness, there, there ought to be the expressions of long-suffering, of bearing long with one another. I remember uh, years ago, uh, before seminary, I, I was working in construction and I'll never, well, as long as I keep my senses, I'll never forget. Uh, those of you who know how to build a house uh, know that in those days, anyways, uh, you had to cut uh, the floor joists. And, and there were two extremely long floor joists uh, on this house that I was working uh, as just out of high school. And there was only a certain number of boards that could be cut to fit in these long floor joists. Uh, and the master carpenter gave me the measurements. And I pulled my tape measure and I made the mark and I cut that board and we slid it into place and it was far, far too short. Now we were down to one more try. And I said, you know, if you want to make this cut, go ahead. And he said, no, I'm a forgiving man. You try it again. And I don't know what it was about me. I said, well, I'm glad you're a forgiving man, but how long-suffering are you? Because if I cut this one wrong... Are you still going to forgive me? Now, it's just a silly analogy, but there's a difference. To bear long with someone. But then, if we need motivation to be long-suffering with one another, what is our God towards us? Would we want a God who is not long-suffering? Of course not. How far would you get into this week if God were not long-suffering? How many times don't we come Sunday after Sunday in our corporate prayers and daily in our private prayers and we confess our sins, but we take a great 
measure of hope I trust in the fact that our God is a long-suffering God. And He has called us in part to be imitators. And you can think of Jesus and His interaction with the disciples. Uh, when I spent some more time in a teaching capacity, I often would think about Jesus as a teacher. What a masterful teacher He was. And of course He was the perfect teacher. He was the Son of God. But His long-suffering nature with His students. Especially we think perhaps of one student in particular. Peter. You know, every teacher has had a Peter in the classroom. Very quick to speak at the appropriate times and the inappropriate times. Sometimes insightful comments. Sometimes comments of absolute ignorance. Think of how many times just recorded in the Gospel. We know that the Gospel of John says if all of the works of the Lord Jesus Christ were written, the world cannot contain the books, but we just read the accounts that we have and we see something of the long-suffering nature of Jesus Christ towards His disciples. Time and time again, their faith is so weak and so imperfect. Master, do you not care that we're perishing? And He stands up in the boat and He commands the wind and the waves to be calm. He turns to His disciples. Perhaps you think of what might have been the sternest comment to Simon Peter. Simon, Satan has desired you. But then think of the most tenderest words upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he speaks to the women there in the garden, go tell my disciples. And then you see something of the pathos of the long-suffering of Christ and Peter. Go tell Peter, who denied me three times. And I often, I know my own personality. I, I think of what Jesus could have said to Peter when they first encountered one another after the resurrection. You know, Jesus could have looked at Peter and said, Really? I warned you. I told you it was going to happen. He could have said to Peter, I cannot believe that you denied me. He could have said, Peter, what about your boasting? I heard you say, even if everyone else abandoned me, you wouldn't. You, Peter, were the first one to deny me. But you want to talk about long-suffering and humility? Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Those who follow after a humble Savior and who serve a long-suffering God ought to engage in the work of ministry among ourselves with that same attitude. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring. The word endeavoring is a very intense word. Giving all of your energies to doing what? To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So conducted by saints, there is to be this work of the ministry. Uh, ministry just simply means the service to others. And I suppose this is just simply sinful human nature, but it seems to be especially rampant in Western culture. And perhaps you can attribute it to secularism, to naturalism, to materialism. Certainly if we have the idea that all that there is is that which we see in the here and the now. That will foster a selfish mentality. 
if we understand, of course, that everything must be evaluated in the light of eternity, then we can perhaps begin to understand uh, why we ought to live lives not simply for ourselves, but also in the service of others. And if you think of ministry, it just simply means to serve others in a certain specific way. And, of course, there are all sorts of varieties of gifts that are given. Uh, When you think of the description here uh, of the saints uh, and how they are to edify, in verse 12, the body of Christ, the word edifying just simply means to build up. Synonyms might be to encourage, to help in the process of the maturity. And so all of our activities, and especially, congregation, our interpersonal activities, Uh, The words that we say to one another, uh, the exchanges that we have with one another, even the the nonverbal exchanges that we have with one another, within the community uh, of the faith, we really ought to step back and ask ourselves, is my interpersonal communication edifying to the other person? Did my word that we so often just count as a small, small thing, just the word in passing, Uh, as we greet one another or as we exchange pleasantries, does it serve in some way to build up, to encourage one another? And I know perhaps just by way of personal antidote, uh, at times you may not even be aware what a person is struggling with or wrestling with, but just simply uh, a word in season can edify and can encourage. I can look back upon my own life and an appropriate word in an appropriate time from a wise leader within the Christian congregation did much to the maturing of my faith. And I would suspect that many of you can also look back, whether it was a parent, whether it was a catechism teacher, whether it was an elder, whether it was a minister, a fellow believer, just a word in season. And at times a word of encouragement, at times a word of instruction, and yes, at times a word of correction, even rebuke and reproof. The Apostle Paul knew how to give those also. But the goal must always be that we actively engage in mutual ministry with this goal that the body that is the church in its corporate wholeness would be edified. You know, on one hand you might say words... Words are such small things. And yet what powerful things they are. And James talks about this. And, and I, I don't know that I've... Well, I've seen some of the freighters on Lake Michigan, but I don't know if I've ever seen the ocean liners. I've seen pictures of them. A bunch of them sitting off the coast of California with all of the cargo containers. These, these ships seem unimaginably massive in my mind. The size, the weight, And the force that they have as they go about the sea. And James picks up on this. How are they steered? A small rudder. And what is the analogy James makes? So is the tongue. So are the words. And also with animal husbandry, you take a horse with a wild spirit. And how can you tame it and how can you direct it? put a bit in its mouth. You pull back, the horse will stop. You pull to the left, the horse will veer that way. These massive animals, and sometimes as they gallop, you can just see the muscles ripple throughout their legs and their shoulders. 
all kinds of old-fashioned horsepower, quite easily directed by a trained horseman with just simply a bit and a bridle. The tongue is the most powerful tool that you and I will ever have for ministry, for serving one another. Well, how are we to use the tongue? Well, we are to use it by speaking the truth. But speaking the truth in love. Don't miss that because I believe, and I'm guilty of this more than anyone else, and I've often told my old congregation, when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching most to myself. So many times we say, well, I spoke the truth. You know, it's just, just who I am. I'm a truth teller. Well, very good. But don't forget that phrase, speaking the truth in love. And if we need a working description of what love is, we go, of course, to 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Well, among other things, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love never fails. And so this is among the variety of gifts and talents that are given to the Christian church. The primary tool for ministry, for building up the congregation, is the tongue. Well, what then is our goal? The goal in this ministry is, yes, a spiritual edification, but also then a spiritual maturity. Uh, the spiritual edification uh, to build up the body of Christ. The spiritual building up. Uh, there might be the healthy development within the living organism of the church. And now I, I, I caught the tail end of uh, Iowa summer in August with the heat and the drought. And I know the experience was the same uh, in, in Michigan. We, we had, although much smaller and not as many of them, we, we had our farm ponds. And, and sometimes you had a farm pond uh, and it didn't have a proper inlet of water nor a proper outlet of water. And it was just a stagnant cesspool. And, and around late July or late August was when uh, the stagnancy really began to produce the undesirable effect. You wouldn't want to go in that pond. You wouldn't even want to really get close to that pond. The water was not moving. Most likely, other than perhaps a few tadpoles, there was nothing living in it. Now, I know some may say, well, that's because of the herbicides that were sprayed next to it. Well, maybe. I don't know. But it was stagnant. Congregation, I sadly say, there are relationships that are stagnant because there's never been ongoing growth by way of healthy communication. And it's like that farm pond. You drive by it and you look and you say, yeah, the thing always turns green in August. Nothing we can do about it. It's just the way it is. Well, if that's on an 80-acre parcel of your farm Maybe you can just drive by it and say, that's just the way it is. But if that's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be ministering to one another so that there might be ongoing growth, ongoing spiritual growth. Now, yes, we certainly know that it is the Spirit that gives growth, but the Spirit uses means. 
And he uses means by giving his grace into the hearts of Christians who then express the reality of that grace through their mouths and through their words of mutual edification and encouragement so that there might be this ongoing growth. And we all need this growth. Uh, There's none of us who yet have graduated, obviously, from the church militant. Because not to speak uh, harshly or overly crude, but if we had graduated from the church militant, then we would not be here this evening. Our soul would be in the eternal realm. But we're still here, and so God is still working out His purpose in and through us. Using others to minister to us and using us to minister to others so that there might be this spiritual edification that is continually ongoing and is attaining a maturity. And here we drop down a little bit further within our text. Verse 14, uh, or rather 13, the goal is that the, the Christian, and by extension then the Christian church, might come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we should no longer be children. And then you drop down to verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I just want to point out this maturity, this maturity in the faith, has to be Christ-focused, Christ-centered. If we think we are mature, but we are not focused upon the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're not mature, we're really immature. And in that state of immaturity, the great danger is that we would be tossed to and fro by all the various sorts of winds of doctrine that continue to blow throughout the halls of the Christian church. But if we commit, if we commit to be an active member, a living member of the Christian church as that manifests itself within a local congregation. And if we commit to receiving the grace of God, ministering out of that grace of God, so that we might be a vehicle to assist our brother or our sister in the maturity of the faith, I do believe that this would radically transform many relationships. Many relationships within the home, many relationships within a congregation, many relationships within a community, many relationships within uh, neighboring congregations. Again, uh, these words do not apply to anyone living in this community. But I also don't think I will ever forget having an elder tell me that he would not speak to his brother, was also an elder in the same federation of churches over a family dispute that they had had decades earlier. Imagine. One brother says, I am a Christian. The other brother says, I am a Christian. They won't speak to each other. Even though they both belong to the same federation of churches. And then you go and you read Ephesians. 
I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. You drop to verse 12. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of itself, the body of Christ. You drop to verse 15, speaking the truth in love, that the body, the church, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. That ought to be our humble goal. And as we begin a new week, and you can go through this evening in the quietness of your own home, you can go through a mental inventory of those persons who you will communicate with this week. And if they be fellow Christians, especially, not exclusively, because it's not as if we don't speak the truth and love to the unbelievers, but we just begin within the household of God, those persons with 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 whom you will have communication this week. Do you view yourself as a minister to them? That through your words you might communicate grace? That might edify them? Build them up in the maturity of the Christian faith? Every part doing its share. You know, when you think of the human body and its ability to move, Something we take so for granted, but really it's quite fascinating. Uh, in a few moments, hopefully, uh, I'll, I'll walk down the, the stairs here. And, and now, of course, you're, you'll probably all be watching, but that's not the point of the analogy. But you just think of all of the components within the human person that have to operate in harmony for such a simple exercise as walking down a flight of stairs. I don't even begin to understand one thousandth of it. The mind must send all of the signals to the appropriate muscles which must move at the appropriate times in perfect harmony with other muscles to maintain an upright posture, but yet also to move the legs while maintaining balance to go down the steps. And that's the analogy the Apostle Paul uses. We as a Christian congregation are like a body. All sorts of parts. We must work interacting with one another with harmony following the commands of the central command unit, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would humbly submit to you as I submit to myself, this is the calling of the ministry of the saints. So we heard about what the elders are supposed to do. We heard about what the deacons are supposed to do. And now we hear about what we all are supposed to do. By the grace of God, given in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we first and foremost thank you that you are a redeeming God. A God who is long-suffering. A God who forgives. Uh, We confess our need of forgiveness, but we also plead for much of your grace. A grace that would, of course, transform every single aspect of our being. But grace also... Uh, that would especially transform our speaking. When we speak, we do pray that we might always speak the truth in love, that we might always have a, a goal of edifying, of building up one another, uh, especially within the Christian congregation, but by extension within the communities in which we live and in which we work and in which we have our being. We pray, Father, that in all things we might glorify You, with our words, 
We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.